Code Fun Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash remote ruby. This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote ideas to the meaning of the word? New home. Yeah. What's up? Home sweet home. Just, Just living the dream. Nothing real new and exciting. Shannon and the kids are up in Nashville, so I've had this very quiet house other than my dog barking, and I'm like, what am I going to work on this weekend? Because I have all this time and all this peace. So, Yeah, that sounds like fun. When was that last time that we did one of those weekends where we just like hung out on Slack and stuff, like a Zoom call oh, yeah. and we just yeah, all worked mean- together? That was fun. Yeah, I was talking to Andrew from Air about maybe doing that this weekend. So if you're oh, doing any late down. night coding, yeah, I definitely go see you, Mr. Mason. Maybe, maybe Saturday. My birthday is on Sunday, and I'm planning to not do anything, and I'm not working on Monday either. So nice. how old that's you Saturday. Turning? Down. How old? Yeah, twenty-four. So young. <laughs> Jason, your beard always makes you appear like you're six years older than me or something (laughs) and it always is always strange to find out like we're like almost the exact same age i missed a real opportunity growing up i grew up very religious and was like oh no like i cannot touch alcohol especially not before i'm 21 but like i had a real golden opportunity because i always looked older than i was yeah you could have been that kid selling fake ids now you can build a rail service that will sell IDs for you. <laughs> Andrew, that means that you are younger than Ruby. I am younger than Ruby. Matt's tweeted, and I guess it was in Ruby Weekly too, that Ruby is 27 now. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. That's pretty crazy. That How means old you is... can also rent a hotel or a, a car. Yeah, right. You. How old is Rails, I wonder? 2003 or four when he started on it. Yeah. I think three. It's pretty old then. I can't do math or I tell you what that is. That's weird. Yeah. The Wikipedia says the initial release date was 2004. So yeah, probably 2003 or earlier when he was originally working on it. That's what, 16, 17 years? Crazy. Yeah. But that means when I got into it, it was just about to turn 10 years old. Well, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I think I got into got into Rails around 2010. So yeah, same yeah. same time roughly or whatever. I originally like looked into Python or Ruby because I was looking for a language that would work cross-platform back in like 2007, something like that. I think when I was like first trying to figure out, you know, what what to build, what to teach myself and. I ended up going with Python originally instead of Ruby because Python just was installed by default on Ubuntu, you know, and Ruby was not. So that was like, uh, guess I'll use that instead. And as far as my understanding was at the time, they're like the same language, just a little different. Like the syntax and all that looks the same or close enough. But as it turns out, they're like vastly more different underneath. It's like uh, Ruby's like significantly way more flexible, but it's the 
I don't know, like the philosophy of Matt's and everything that he brings to Ruby that really makes it special. Like the, you know, it should be fun, but also like extremely flexible. That's some of the coolest stuff that like makes Ruby so special. So it's pretty awesome to like see that's 27 years old. That's really, you know, thriving still because it's, it's what we should be doing. Like we're programmers. We should be building programs for humans at this point more than we should be for the computer to understand it and execute it fast. Not only that, but Matt's is still involved after 27 years. Like, yeah, that's so cool. I know he's talked a little bit about moving on or whatever and getting replacements and that sort of thing and in place so that someone else can lead the, the charge here in the next few years or whatever, when he decides to retire, but, Man, it's crazy. Like, Go Rails is probably the longest thing I've ever worked on, which is like six and a half or seven years, something like that. But never worked on anything for 27 years straight. That's pretty awesome. Like, huge respect. I haven't even worked on one thing for more than two years <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. Like, for the longest time, I, like, just being in, in high school or college was like my longest thing I'd ever done. You know, there, there's definitely dividends that pay off the longer you can stick with something. But yeah, it was, it's interesting. Like when you're learning, you jump around between projects and jobs and all that so often. But 27 years of Ruby is pretty fantastic. Yeah. And I can only imagine because people sometimes can't be the best to work with. So like, yeah, it, ma- maintaining a project that bukus of people use, like, that takes yeah. a it takes a lot of emotional toll. Like, I guess any open source does, but so yeah. Otherwise, you end up with a grumpy old Linus Torvalds uh, mentality or something. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. And Matt's is always so like he's still so excited to talk to people and so nice. It's just my yeah. Model. When I was at RubyConf this year, that was I'd never seen Matt's in person, and the one thing I immediately thought was like he looks so happy. He looks like just a generally happy person. Every know? time I've tried to take a picture with him, it always ends up blurry and I never have like, I'm, I'm always like, well, I use my one chance. Like I can't, I can't ask again. It's just blurry with happiness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything cool going on? I know all three of us bought Tailwind UI. Yeah. I have had zero time to, I think I installed it, but didn't actually try any components. Um mm. There's a few people trying to use it in uh, Jumpstart Pro. So I just like debugged why it wasn't working. And one of those things was the uh, version. We were just one version behind 1.1 instead of 1.2. And that was like causing a little bit of, it was like uh, the Tailwind UI slash plugin or whatever require that you had to do just wouldn't require. And updating that seemed to do the trick. But have you guys installed it and fiddled with it at all yet i've i've been fiddling how's it been i like it a lot yeah i i had somebody message me and they're like you know this this wasn't what i thought it was i thought it was going to be like a replacement to bootstrap and i was like oh no this is exactly how i thought it was going to be based on just hearing adam talk about it and li- like watching them tweet about it and i was like you can make it a bootstrap replacement i was like but they made it so configurable for you that it's not going to have a lot of the problems that Bootstrap does have. 
And he was like, well, I want to be able to like easily reuse stuff. And I was like, okay, well then pull all the classes off, give it a custom name and then go in your CSS and do add apply. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of one of the things like Adam talks about making Tailwind like scalable is like do all these things and then put it into some kind of component. I think I saw him tweet or talk about that like he didn't even really necessarily want to add apply into Tailwind. But yeah, like I know Adam's really big on yeah, if you need to reuse this component. He's tweeted about not even liking to make components. I don't remember. It's like a month ago or something, but I know he tweeted like something about like, I don't even know if you need to bother with, you know, making components. I can understand it for something like buttons or whatever, but like, you know, for nav bar classes, the second you want to do something unique, like put an avatar in there or like a drop down or a button or, you know, it tends to be like, eventually you're going to do something that's not standard. So you have to build unique cases kind of for everything. So it's like, is it really that much harder to just copy paste from the other nav links and make a new one? And go build your extracted version. And then, you know, you're, you can't apply that in the avatar case because it's slightly different because it's an image now or whatever. And I was like, I kind of get it. Like, not all cases, like buttons are very systematic or whatever, but like a lot of these things end up being kind of custom. And if you have all the classes there, you can tweak individually, then you can make it look perfect by not having used the extracted versions. Cause if you extract them, then you got to build a unique case for that one or like try and undo some of those things in it, which is like the whole reason that bootstrap was a pain in the butt was, it was really hard to undo stuff. And there was just not a great way to like, you know, grab the source code and customize it. Yeah. I, see, I guess in my mind, like I only think of a component as something I will like use again. It's so like a nav bar for me, I'm like, it, I know there's maybe cases, but for me, when I put a nav bar, it's like a SaaS app. Like it's, that's the only time. Yeah. And I always want to grab somebody's example nav bar and then tweak it. And then it's always different than what they had, but I want to make sure that it like, you know, compresses into something nice on mobile with a, you know, hamburger menu or something, you know? And so like having that in Tailwind UI or like the components examples in Tailwind CSS, it's about all I really want. You know, I don't need the like nav links and those other nav bar things that that Bootstrap gives you because I always have to undo them or customize Mm -hmm. it pretty heavily. But I I agree with you. Like there's some of those you just want a, a good starting place. And like Tailwind UI is pretty much exactly that, which is like, we know you're going to customize it. So here's some pretty looking stuff from the very beginning that's like (laughs) detailed to the extreme too, which he was talking about in that tweet the other day about, what was it, the the focus like class or something where the credit card form example or something he had was, you know, not working just just perfectly. And so he was spending a a while like fixing that up. So it was like, you know, perfect details around that. That's the kind of stuff that like, 
it's great to have someone else do rather than you having to fiddle with it yourself. Yeah, someone was asking me, maybe one of my coworkers, if I liked working on front-end code. And my answer is, I love working on front-end code where there's like a pre-existing design system in place, which is where we're at at work right now. Like we have a product designer and he's amazing at what he does. And he's worked with one of the other developers to like actually customize Bootstrap to be like how the app function, like how it should look. And so like when I go to use a card, like I know it's how the designs are going to like, and it's been such like such a productivity boost. And like, we've paired that with like action view component. It's like we have a card component and like, I can just reach for that card component and give it a block and pass my stuff in. And yeah. So tail in UI for like my side stuff is I'm so excited to work with that. Yeah. I made a comment to Nate the other day because I was like bike shedding stuff on the front end. And I was just like, dude, if we had a, a designer, I guarantee you we would be 200 to 300% faster at least at minimum. Yeah, yeah. I we, agree. Like we had a, a designer before who was also amazing, but he had to split his time between like the marketing side and the product. We didn't have a an actual like I guess guide or like system in place, especially one that was like paired with Bootstrap, and we were on Bootstrap three, so like our hands were even more tied. And so like we went up to Bootstrap four, we started setting some like hard lines in the sand. It's been it's been really, it's really good for us. So yeah, I worked I worked with a designer at my last job, and he now works for Square, and I believe he's hiring Rails devs too, maybe. But, oh my God, like we were able to, he'd give me a design. I would like immediately turn around with like, hey, what about this? Like, what if the text is too long and it wraps? You know, stuff you don't think about in the first version of your design or whatever. And we'd be able to jump back and forth like so fast and produce stuff that was like way better than I could do on my own. And we were able to like tease all those little edge cases out really quickly that he couldn't see from, you know, Photoshop or sketch or whatever. And, oh man, it was some of the best, most productive time that I ever had working with someone. I really, really miss that. And yeah, I think those like, I know Basecamp talks about this too. They, they have like little teams of a designer and one or two developers. And I think that's like extremely fast to build stuff that way with those tiny teams because that you know when you're designing a drop down or you know you have to have some select out of multiple options they can give you like the idea of which one to use you can go build it and iterate back and forth on that where if you just left it to whatever you were going to do as the developer it would look ugly or whatever and not be as intuitive so yeah I, I think that's really fun to do that yeah even like yesterday or today we were working on we hadn't brought like tricks over into our bs4 stuff yet it's still in so like as part of this transition we actually run both bootstrap 3 and bootstrap 4 in our app bootstrap 4 runs through webpacker and bootstrap 3 is through the asset pipeline and so we had brought tricks over and so while we were there, he was like sending me icons to replace tricks icons and like 
we were like customizing every little detail about tricks and like it was just so cool it's stuff i would never in a million years know how to do yeah that is pretty cool those little it's funny because sometimes those can go out of hand too where you're like you need to move this stuff over what was it recently i moved i moved uh go rails from rails 5.2 up to rails 6 which was like I, I don't know why i never finished it and now it's up there but it was like moving stuff from the asset pipeline over to Webpacker was such a pain in the butt because there was those little things of like, well, if I'm going to do this, I should make sure I'm using Rails UJS instead of jQuery UJS. And oh yeah, the parameters for like the method or type of request are different names now because jQuery's Ajax method was like type or something and and then method for the other one. I forget which one's which now, even. And those nuances like uh like ruined a few things where some stuff I forgot to update or you know, like test, but it was some like obscure little feature that you didn't think of. Yeah. I eventually went upgrade to action text too, but stuck with all the content and markdown on our comment system right now. And there's no real good markdown WYSIWYG editors for comments that I can find. Like I've looked a whole ton and there's not been much new uh, WYSIWYG things. So I've kind of been thinking about moving to action text and tricks for, for comments. But, you know, that's another thing I could choose to do or just delay. Delay. Yeah, yeah I think definitely delay. Yeah, you get like caught up in a lot of those like rabbit holes pretty easily you let yourself yeah this has been kind of a week of rabbit holes you, you talking about jquery just started triggering me all the all the front end stuff i did a lot of front end stuff this week and i'm just so tired of it i'm just so tired of working on the front end like i used to really like it and now that i don't have a designer i hate it i hate it so much such a time suck yeah front end without a designer and it's like a really hard thing to do. I'm designing uh, the last bits of a form for for a Hatchbox to create managed databases on RDS and Elasticache and DigitalOcean and stuff. But there's like, you know, these unique options for each one of those that my form in view has to be, okay, you choose these things and then we display options in this case, but not these other cases. And we'd only want to display those when you've set some of the previous options. And it's just a nightmare. And I've got to go sync stuff back and forth from the server and it's not fun. So I'm like, and then I, that was one of the projects that's still on jQuery for Ajax requests and stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, like, all this stuff needs to get updated. And ideally, I would be using something more like Stimulus Reflex or something for the form. But because everything else is already in in view there, I'm just going to keep it consistent. And then I don't want to have two different systems for my complex forms until I decide I'm going to port them all over to something, you know, hopefully better. It's felt like a rabbit hole of maintenance and other stuff because it's like the only project I use Vue on right now and I don't touch it very often so when I have to come back to it it feels like a nightmare to like how does this work again what are the callbacks like what is the the context of 
this and all these different methods and whatever. That's not super fun. I've been doing quite a bit of front end work this week. And yeah, I mean, not to like harp on it, but it really does make a difference having someone help you guide those decisions. And it makes it fun. This is the first job where I've, well, I mean, I worked at an ad agency, but like this is the first like product job where I've worked with a designer. I've worked with two while I've been there and they're both like so good. So yeah, it's been good. Out of Hanami world came Hanami API this week. I don't know if anyone saw that or looked into it. Saw the tweet, didn't look into it really, but that is a Rails API-esque thing, I would assume. Yeah, so it it essentially is like the Hanami router uh, with a block syntax, kind of like Sinatra. So it's basically, if I understand right, let me actually pull it up. I think it's actually more performant than Sinatra. So it mm. uses less memory. And yeah, it can do, according to like their benchmarks, it handles more requests per second, uses less memory, and has a much smaller runtime. I know, what was it, Nate Burkpeck or somebody tweeted earlier about like, you know, some of those benchmarks take with a big grain of salt because they're not necessarily feature equivalent, you know? So like if you're testing against Rails API, like there's all kinds of extra things that Rails gives you out of the box that, you know, those might not or whatever. Like Sinatra doesn't have an ORM of any kind, you know? So like, if you're comparing the performance of, you know, uh, Rails or something, it's got extra considerations to take into account or whatever. And it was just like a, a good thought, you know, that I don't think a lot of people think about when you like see a benchmark because it's like a, a very basic comparison between the two when it's not necessarily like a fair one or whatever. But yeah, I, I would imagine that it's super fast. Most of the Hanami stuff is like, quite fast, isn't it? Yeah, that's performance is one of the things they pay attention to. Um, not that like people on Rails don't. It's just something they, I guess a better phrase is something they strive to continually yeah, like, improve it, on. I think they prioritize it or whatever more than Rails kind of prioritizes like ease of use or whatever first. And then performance is whatever is needed to keep it not from being super slow. I have a question before you yes. go any farther. What is Hanami? I have no idea what Hanami is. I remember oh. on like very early remote Ruby episodes, you guys talking about it. I have no clue what Hanami is. So it is an MVC framework for Ruby that is, it takes some different architectural approaches. I'm really into Hanami. So it's an MVC Ruby framework that. It's like on their website, they say fast response times, full feature, but lightweight. So like it says it uses 60% less memory than other Ruby frameworks. Some of the architectural differences, some like low hanging fruit things, controllers, each action to its own class and each controller action or each class has its own view model that comes with it. So like, and then you have templates. So it kind of, it does a really good job of like separating things out. A set of active record tsunami model, which is built on top of ROM RB. And so like you have uh, repositories and entities, like it kind of separates out persistence and domain logic. 
that's really like a high level thing. So I take it you really want to use it because the expression on your face is love, but like distant love that you can't really have, but you really want, even though you know it's forbidden. It's, I keep forgetting that. Yeah. You can see my face right now. Yeah. I really, I really like it. And I, they're working on version two right now. So it's like 1.3 or something. And version 2.0, they're teaming up with the ROM RB and dry RB like project teams. I've actually never used ROM, but I've used DryRB and I've built something in Nami, but I never like released it like to production. I really, I really like the way they approach architecture. It's a little different. I mean, it's pretty different from Rails. Like MVC is really the only two things that are the same. But yeah, I think it's really, I think it's really cool. So when they announced Hanami API, I was just clapping because yeah, another Hanami thing. Does that answer your question? does. Now I'm interested. And if I come back next week and I have that, that longing look in my face, I'm going to be, you'll, you'll know what happened. Yeah. It's cool. We actually had Luca on the show. I think Chris might have been sick that week, but he's the yeah. creator of Anami. And I sat down and talked to him for quite a while about it. Yeah. yeah it's pretty I cool. remember that. I think it's a really good thing to have other frameworks, you know, in the, community like pushing different directions forward because that's like i don't know it's been like the rails way or the highway for a long time and mm. it's really nice to see anami doing so well and adding all these kind of like you know feature equivalent kind of things to a framework and yeah it might require you to go build a few more things from scratch you can't grab device or whatever access taggable and those kind of things off the shelf but like you're comfortable doing that, then it might be the perfect framework for a lot of people, which is fantastic and get a little bit of performance and whatever out of it at the same time. Yeah. A couple of things I forgot to mention, uh, I was just looking through the guides that I really like is validations actually happen at a controller level versus a model level. And so you can, you just say like validate, do, give it a block. And I, I think it uses dry validation under the hood. And it's really slick because then like you don't necessarily instantiate the model and try and persist it or like check that it's valid. Like you just say, hey, are these params valid? And if I remember correctly, dry validation is like quite fast. Like it's I don't remember the exact numbers, but I remember it being I don't want to use the word substantially, but it was faster than like active model validations. So that's cool. That's one of the things that just like constantly gets me about rails like using a database record as your source for the the form is rarely like what you need in a complex thing but you got to go create like a active model model object with validations and stuff to get something equivalent which is nice and works well enough but it's not like a core thing and that would save a lot of trouble if Rails was just like, hey, you can do this. You don't need anything new. Uh, like you can still use your active record stuff just like normal, but you know, use this model object and then have that, you know, keep track of these like variables and things that your form might need to collect. You don't necessarily need to save in your database or whatever. That is uh 
a constant like source of frustration you see with a lot of Rails developers getting into building more advanced forms and whatever else. And it's just really good to see that like baked into the framework kind of from day one. You can do it with Rails. You just have to like figure out how to do it, you know, which I think a lot of people just look for some guidance from the Rails guides or whatever. And when there's no content on that, you just get frustrated and complain about it and, you know, look to move somewhere else, which is kind of understandable, but we should probably do a better job of, you know, contributing that stuff to the docs and whatever, because it's totally doable. It's not very hard, but you just need examples. Mm -hmm. That's actually something Hanami guides are really good at. Not only like examples, but like conceptually, like explaining why they do certain things certain ways. That's super nice. Yeah, it's really cool. Like, so there, Hanami actually has like an interactor class built in. And there's a whole page on like, like, here's the feature we're building. Why wouldn't we use callbacks or something like that? Like all this stuff. It's really good. The other really cool thing, I, I keep forgetting all these things to mention. You can actually, so you can create multiple like apps in one Hanami application. So, you know, if you built like an admin instead of like just saying like app controllers admin and like making a namespace there, like you actually have like app admin, I think is the folder structure. But like each, each app has its own like config that might be changing in the new version, but all the domain, like the models and domain logic and stuff lives outside and like the lib directory. So all those apps can share that. Huh. That's kind of neat. I think that's the other frustration you see in Rails with Rails engines a lot. Is they're pretty confusing on how they work. That's maybe an understatement too. Yes. Having built a few right. of those, they're, they've been kind of a nightmare to understand how they work or little things like... Uh, plugging in a extension or something and doing it in the right place in your like initializers on. So usually you need like a to prepare block or something like that. Like wait until the callback for action controller base is loaded, you know, and then do something when, when that happens. It's not super intuitive and the documentation is also fairly sparse about that too, which has bitten me in a bunch of different times in projects. Hanami kind of gets probably a really nice, like, here's how Rails did it, and here's all the, like, really rough edges. Let's just do those differently, you know, because we can from a fresh slate, which probably benefits the clarity of a lot of that code, like, immensely. So I'm going to have to try it on a project. Didn't you build something with Hanami, Jason? Yeah, I I don't remember what it was that stopped me. I ended up, I built it and then I ended up moving a lot of it just back into a Rails app. It actually probably wasn't Hanami's fault. It was that I got tripped up on Webpack because like there's no Webpacker. Like somebody is, I think, made a gym that'll do it, but I was naive and tried to do it myself and it, yeah. it just got out of hand. I don't think I've ever set up Webpack by itself. Now that you mention it, I've always used Webpacker and I'm sure that it's just uh, everything I saw was like when Webpack was becoming popular, it was like, here, let's go build our giant config file. And I was like, can you guys not just ship like a default 
one or something. And yeah, it, it seemed like it was not going to be very easy to go set up yourself. So yeah, I would assume they're going to tackle that as part of the core at some point, if they're going to officially like adopt that as their build pipeline or whatever. I have set up Webpack, like straight up Webpack before in a non-Rails app. And it was the most frustrating thing I've ever had to do. Probably, it may be in my entire life. Out of all of the frustrating things that have ever happened to me, having to try to wrangle a Webpack config was definitely in the top top 10 of that list. Oh, man. We can see your Vietnam flashbacks happening. Oh, my God. It was uh, so so angering and everyone's doing it completely differently. And I, I don't want to talk about this. Yeah, man, what was it that I was doing the other day? It felt the same way. I can't remember what it was, but you know, like, well, even like Docker setups for, for Rails apps, they're like every single one of them is like significantly different yep. than the others. And it's like, there's no standardized way of setting this up and yeah, it's just a nightmare, you know, like those projects that don't have some sort of convention and just leave it all to everyone to do their own custom configuration thing. Like it is no fun to work on those projects. Not at all. Speaking of no fun, I have a question for y'all. Have you guys ever run into like invalid authenticity token errors with like device that you just can't ever resolve? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times what I've seen is like, you know, you might have two pages open in your browser or whatever. And I'll see that in production where somebody's like done something that updates their authenticity token that goes back to an older page that's like on the old one and that fails. But, you know, th- there's like a million different sources that can can cause some of those things. So what is what is like your rough idea of what might be causing it or what's going on. So this is not me. Nate is just having one of those days. For some reason, he can't log in or out of the app locally. He can't submit any forms when he tries to disable the logging in stuff. And he has blown all his gens away. He's blown all the cache away. He's restarted his computer. He's tried different browsers. There was a legitimate issue with Puma. There was a CV or a security release of Puma last night that did have a problem with authenticity tokens, but we rolled that back, back to the old version. I have yet to have a problem at all with it, but he can't use the app at all. He says the tests all run, they run fine. He just can't interact with the app. And I think he's actually starting to lose it. (laughs) Oh, man. I wonder, I wonder if, because sometimes it can deal with like cookie domains and that sort of thing. Like, I wonder if it's related to something like that in the browser, maybe. I'm not sure. It yeah. seems like one that you like got to go into the, the code in the browser and, and poke around and see what's going on and like, you know, log out the CSRF token that is in the session and then the one that's submitted in the form and all that and see why they don't match up and whatever. I I remember having done that before because I couldn't figure it out too. And I like went into action controller or something and put in a before action before anything happened so that it was like 
here I'm going to check your params and I'm going to check your session for the CSRF token that is currently saved. So I can see if they match or not. And then if they match, then something weird going on in my code that verifies it. Or if they're different, like then at least I know something's changed that somewhere and maybe I can figure out why it's getting changed and it's not consistent or whatever. That'd probably be the first place I would start now if I was to debug something like that because it would maybe narrow down kind of which piece of the puzzle is is breaking or whatever. Yeah, he's not having a good day. He, <laughs> yeah. he messaged me and he says, I'm effectively neutered as a contributor. And <laughs> I thought that was just an amazing way to word that. <laughs> that is hilarious. Well, I don't know. Hopefully you guys get that figured out soon because that sounds like a really painful thing to deal with. Something that you like take for granted is a core piece of, of Rails that just works seamlessly without any thoughts. When that breaks, then you're like, oh boy. And I have to like go figure out how it actually works inside Rails and figure out what have we done or what's wrong on my system, you know? Those are like long debugging sessions when something goes wrong on that level. And speaking of that Puma thing, it looks like Nate Berkopek released a, a fix for that like in the last hour. But Jason, I know you guys were dealing with that same Puma issue in production or whatever. Yeah, we rolled out and uh, people were having trouble logging in. So we had to roll back pretty quickly and it got brought down to the new line thing. but. Yeah, it was like, what, basically, if you had duplicate cookies, then Rack like uh, concatenates them with a new line or something in between, and the new line's like a vulnerability in, in uh, Puma, I guess, specifically, or something. Yeah. To be honest, I missed all of it because I was pairing with someone, and then I came back Luckily. and they had already like handled it all. I was like, all right, see ya. Yeah, like, sweet. This is great. (laughs) Yeah, there's been a handful of little things that have broken Puma recently because I guess it's like six months ago or something. Around when Puma 4 came out, there was like a socket activation for like uh, graceful restarts and stuff on Linux broke. That was a big like, I pretty much for Hatchbox just had to tell people to roll back there. Puma versions until that was fixed and it wasn't like clear how to it seemed like it wasn't clear how to replicate the issue and then test for it and whatever in an automated test suite of course so it seemed like it took quite a while for people to get that figured out and fixed but yeah Puma is still hands down my favorite like Ruby web server and Nate does a fantastic job keeping up with all those it was like, you know, building a, it's like trying to debug random people's Rails code, you know, and fix bugs in the framework. Like that has got to be a very tough thing to maintain and support with all of those random uses of it all over. So yeah. huge props to him. It's probably worth noting that Richard Schneeman and Evan Phoenix are also maintainers of that. So shout out to all of them. Yeah, they've all done a fantastic job with that. What else is uh, new this week, guys? I had one of my blog posts published in Ruby Weekly. That was 
pretty cool. I didn't know or expect that. So it's a little check mark on my unofficial in my head list of things to accomplish. Yeah, that's a, that's a resume line item, right? Yeah, for sure. What was your article about? It was uh, setting up VS Code for Rails development, which is funny because I think I sent out a tweet one night about thinking about writing that and you actually responded and you were like, just do it now. And I just did it then. And that has been a very popular post somehow. Dude, that's great. Yeah, I remember you tweeted it and I was like, do it. And that is, it's funny how those like random things that you're like, yeah, maybe I should do this. And then you do it and you find out like, whoa, this is actually way more popular than I ever imagined. That is a good, uh, good feeling, right? Now you've got a, your Ruby Weekly feature as your claim to fame here. Yep. I'm, uh, I'm checking off all the boxes <laughs> for my That's 24th good. birthday. Yeah, there you go. Accomplishing those life goals. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, this past week, I hadn't touched uh, Shrine for file uploading for a couple of years now, maybe. It's been a while. Shrine version two was like the last time I covered it on GoRails and a bunch of those plugins and stuff had changed for, for version three. So to kind of dive back into Shrine and check it out again, I, I ended up rebuilding a like year old Rails app called animatedgift.me that I originally built just to like make it so you could type in the domain and then slash in a word. And it would give you a random GIF. Like, so if you go to slash money, it'll give you a random GIF tag money. And then you can copy it to your clipboard and, you know, paste it in Slack or whatever really fast. So I built that and like the original version of the site was just linking to images on like other sites because I didn't want to pay for storing all those images and everything. And I thought it would be a good time to like rebuild it. But I ended up, like recording the entire thing. So I did it in like, I don't know, four hours or something and recorded that whole process as a screencast. And like, we start with the new Rails app and go all the way to deploying it to production and everything, which is pretty fun. So I published the first like video on that on on Go Rails this week, which was kind of kind of cool. People had been asking to see more of like the the whole process of how I develop an app and test things and whatever else. So that, that was kind of fun. Shrine is still like the most flexible file uploading gem there is. And I like, I would recommend people look at Shrine for how to design a modular like Ruby library. It's so nice to be able to say like, I want this feature and you just say Shrine plugin and the name of it. And there it goes. That is one of my favorite things. It's so flexible. Have you guys used Shrine at all? Looked at it. Haven't used it. Yeah, I think I used it for a few tutorials, probably maybe some from you when I was first learning, but I haven't used it since. Are you guys doing file uploads um, for anything? Yes, we are at CodeFun. All active storage. And Nate has monkey patched all the things. So it gives you all the uh, things that people reference when they don't like I can't use active storage because I need CDNs or I need this or that. He's monkey patched all of it into the app. So it works great. We've never had a problem with it. I've I've seen all of those 
Well, all those threads and issues on GitHub and then all the like monkey patch examples of how to, you know, put in CDN URLs and stuff. Pretty, it's pretty unfortunate it didn't come out with that originally, but it looks like a lot of that will be in Rails 6.1, which is good. But it's good to see that that's been like nice and reliable for you guys because I was going to do the same thing at one point and I just opted to use Shrine instead because it's a little bit more flexible if I'm going to transcode like videos or whatever that that I don't you could maybe do it with active storage but you would just say like we'll have an upload or a file attachment for like the original video and then like separate file attachments for the mp4 or whatever that you transcode into versus like Shrine would just keep all those as one upload as just different formats or something. So I guess there are probably ways you could hack around that with active storage. But the CDN thing I thought was a almost a crucial piece of what active storage should have supported at the beginning. But I guess Basecamp didn't really need that as much because they're private files for them. But that's good to hear. I'm excited to see that hopefully... If we're lucky, Rails 6.1 comes out this year around RailsConf time in a couple months. Go ahead and press X for doubt. Maybe 6.03, but I, I, I doubt we'll be seeing 6.1 at RailsConf. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. RailsConf proposals get announced like next week or the week after, something like that. March 4th. March 4th, cool. Hopefully those will be all announced soon and um, got my ticket and hotel and everything ready. So I'm excited to go out there to Portland. I The only time I've ever been to Portland was I flew in, got a rental car and drove to Bend, Oregon for uh, Ruby on Ales. That was my favorite. Maybe one of my favorite conferences ever. It was just like we had a bar with a beer called Ruby made for us and then the bar opened at 9 a.m which is fantastic. That was a very fun conference. I'm excited to go back out to Oregon this year. Do you listen to Founder Quest from the Honey Badger folks? I do. I haven't listened to it in a while though, because now that I don't have a commute, I don't listen to a whole lot of podcasts anymore. So they're not the episode that released today, but last week's episode they were talking about RailsConf because they're kind of from the Portland area and they are going to have what seems to be a very big presence at RailsConf this year. They're going to have like a big, they said it's not a booth because they said literally no one wanted to man the booth. So they're going to have like some sort of area where you can all come hang out and they'll have swag and stuff and just like a hangout place. And they also are having a party on the first night at Ground Control which is like an arcade bar in Portland, which sounds freaking awesome. Uh, that'll be fun. I can't wait for that. I love those guys. Yeah, I I cannot wait for that either. It's going to be super fun. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I'll definitely plan on going to that. Jason will have to do our expensive dinner again this <laughs> year. We're going to do the same expensive dinner at MicroConf. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, man, when's that? I'm excited for that too. It'll be my so first couple, year of going to MicroConf. A couple of weeks before RailsConf. It's like April 20th or something around there. Sounds about right. 
I had one thing I want to mention. I released a Ruby gem this week. Hey, woo! It's called Andrew Says, and it's a wraparound mini test that just, instead of saying test, she says Andrew Says because Andrew Fumera is so hell bent on using mini test that I wanted to build a shrine to his love for the the tool. Uh, that's pretty great. That like works that out idea. great for me. This works yeah. out exceptionally well. <laughs> the readme says Andrew Fumero, but the actual implementation is just Andrew underscore says. So you're good. Oh, yeah. I'll be it, making a PR. So I tested it in field help. So I know it works. We use mini tests at Code Fun. And yeah, so I know what I'll be doing for the rest of the day. Yep. It's oh, up there great. in the, the gym world. So. And so do you have any other like memes, you know, DSL stuff that you want to add to it? <laughs> I kind of handcuffed myself by calling it Andrew says, but. I figure you can like, you know, make some other methods that just like are aliases for a cert and the cert not and says like, absolutely. Or like, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. It, it took me a embarrassing amount of time to figure out how to do that because like rail also well, rails, if I'm not mistaken, is the one that implements the like test keyword. Cause like mini test by default is like, define test underscore blah, blah, blah. Like they're actual just methods. But yeah, it works mm. inside of Rails and outside of Rails. Uh, that's cool. That's a good, you know, it's it's just a fun project to work on. But like those little projects, just out of curiosity, you know, end up teaching you a bunch of little things about like, you know, here's how Rails tests work and how many tests works, you know? And you probably walked away with that learning a few things that you didn't expect to and you got a good, you know, laugh out of it at the same time. Yeah. I wish I would like just do more stupid stuff like that. I love doing stupid stuff like that. I'm actually going to take all of my stupid stuff I've done and start using this to make sure everyone truly hates me in the, that ever comes across like contributing to one of my projects. They'll be like, seriously, seriously, this is what you're doing in the tests. This is amazing. This is my favorite thing. And you can you can make your fail instead of like failures for your test. It's just like seriously, you think this equals that? <laughs> yeah, when it when it fails, just put like get wrecked, bro, or something like that. <laughs> make sure to throw uh, a bunch of words that mean nothing in there, like yeet. Yeah. Oh man, one of my favorite gems in the entire world is reels. So if you if you type gem install r-i-a-l-s and you just typo rails you you should just go do that right now and try it out and see what happens i don't even know if i want to spoil the surprise have have you guys seen this i think jason i've i've shown you this before maybe i'm trying it now okay also no apologies if like this breaks your rails rails gem well i'm moving out of this environment then It will override the Rails like executable or whatever. So you just yeah, I'm not doing that. I just install Rail ties. I'm not. Dang it, guys! I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) It does give you a warning. No, I can't do that. It's phenomenal. End up like Nate. I don't want to end up like Nate. (laughs) It's phenomenal. What it will do is like override the Rails executable, and when you type like Rails anything. It will just start playing an ASCII Rickroll in your terminal. <laughs> and it's like colored and plays music and everything. It's fantastic. And then like this happened to me. Oh, man. 
pretty early on in my like rails career and I didn't know how to like reinstall rail ties or I didn't know where the executable came from. So I installed it and couldn't figure out how to uninstall it and whatever. So I just blew away everything and reinstalled it. But I'm pretty sure you just like reinstall the the rail ties jam and you're good to go. But I have to so, create a or RBEV install a new uh, old Ruby version. Yeah, so there I you go. that away when I'm done. It's pretty fantastic. I highly recommend it. Well, well anything this week? Nothing for me. Well, I gotta say, welcome to uh, the Code Fund Podcast Network. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that. I started the episode by saying new home, and then never expounded upon that. You just—it uh, was just a teaser for you to listen to the entire episode. So we talked about it. Sure. Yeah. So Remote Ruby has moved onto the fun podcast network. And I don't want to speak for Chris, but we're very excited. This is, yeah, it's really cool. I'm glad people listen and want us to join them. Yeah. I think it will be, it'll be great to have some support and keep the, the workload of editing podcasts and stuff is not a simple one. So this will be, a nice way for us to keep the podcast going as long as possible and keep the support going for it. Yeah, it's going to be a, a very good, you know, support network for us to to be involved in. So I'm excited. Yeah, I'm glad I brought it up to Eric one day just randomly. He was very excited at the prospect. He's like, oh, the way he described you guys was the most flattering descriptions like ever I've ever heard. He, he was very, very excited about the and this was before I actually knew you guys, I think before you guys had met with him, but he, just talking about like the prospect of it, he was very excited. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, we. I don't think I had met him yet until we talked earlier this week. So we were super excited to to be joining and it'll be a good, good time. You guys are good people over there at Code Fund. Oh, I'm, I'm blushing. You don't know <laughs> what I do in my off time though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it's exciting. The podcast network is growing and I'm excited to see what, what kind of happens with it. It's, I don't think I'd ever be able to say like when I first started programming or when I even first started podcasting that like, you know, I would work for a company that's actually actively growing like a large network of tech podcasts. So it's pretty cool, pretty interesting, especially since it's something I'm interested in. Yeah. And I think there's just a lot of, a lot of little things you can learn from podcasts that I wish that I had them when I was around learning way back when, like when I was in high school and stuff, I would have probably spent all my time listening to podcasts of programmers and entrepreneurs and whatever else. It's just a, it's a great way to learn how other people think about solving problems and whatever else, you know, understanding what professional developers even do all day and their frustrations and whatever else that you can relate to. Is just a really nice thing. So podcasts are awesome. A lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, plus one of that, because I learned a ton from listening to podcasts when I was first starting out. This one included, and the one thing I really liked about Remote Ruby is that compared to all the others I was listening to at the time, uh, Remote Ruby was like a discussion. I like that it was just like a, a discussion. It didn't sound like almost scripted like some of the other ones do. It's just a very like real conversation almost like even if you guys didn't record it i could still see us all talking about this stuff that was our original like idea for doing this we were like you know we just sit and and talk for an hour 
or whatever every week. So why don't we just record the stuff and publish it? And it's like the same philosophy I have with the GoRail screencasts. Like I don't want them to be scripted or anything like that. I want them to feel like we're just sitting down and pair programming together. I don't like watching lectury stuff or too scripted of things. I don't get to learn how someone actually works. I get to learn the like perfect version of the world because it's already scripted. So I have an aversion to that. So I kind of like, you know, creating stuff that way. So we, we will have a few like changes like sponsorships now in the podcast, but the rest of it's going to stay exactly the same, which is fantastic. Well, good to catch up and y'all have a good week. You too. See you. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com forward slash remote ruby.